This is the Moshpit Backstage Podcast for punk, metal and rock interviews and segments. Otto is the guitarist of Australian instrumental post-rock band Sleep Makes Waves, who will be releasing their third album, Made of Breath Only, on March 24th. The next day, they'll be playing at Max Watts in Melbourne. Otto, thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure, Ben. Happy to be here. So this latest album, um, talk a little bit about it. Where, where do you get the inspiration for a new album? This is the first time for this band that we've gone into an album with a fairly clear view of what we wanted to do. It feels like with the last two big albums, the the long-playing ones, and So We Destroyed Everything and Love of Cartography, we sort of reached a point where we had enough songs to put them into an album. So we sort of drew a line around them and grabbed them like a a sack full of kittens into the world of the album. Jeez, that was a violent metaphor. (laughs) (laughs) That was the best thing I could come up with. Um, And so with this one from the outset, after what was uh, a fairly... Uh, challenging year for a bunch of the members of the band sort of personally um, we, we knew that we had a bit more darkness to channel into something and, and we went into this knowing that we wanted to make a record that was more cohesively darker in tone and um, this, this idea of the Antarctic and the Arctic as this sort of visual representation of or this visual metaphor of a landscape that's both very uh, fragile and ephemeral but also very bleak and deadly um, sort of came to mind as this starting point conceptually for how to arrange the music that went into this. So um, with, with this one, it was a bit different. We really went into it with a clear goal in mind. How do you write an album? Because I find it's, it's very interesting, all different bands. Sometimes it's an incredibly collaborative effort. Sometimes it's just one member. How do you guys write an album? Um, this one was mainly the result... Well, I mean, all the members of the band have, a, have an input into the record. Um, Alex and I spent a huge amount of time at his little studio in Sydney, pulling the songs together into a, into a reasonable format. And Alex has the, the co-producer credit. He did a lot of the legwork with the pre-production. Um, but we all kind of contribute material. The, the thing that works best for us is not to just come up with a riff or a moment and sort of bring it to a rehearsal room and hope that the song will fall out. We, we used to try and write that way, but it was a lot of time with often output that we weren't 100% happy with. What we try to do now is spend time by ourselves coming up with a few minutes of music, a few connections of riffs and ideas that sort of germinate um, a song. So we've got a bit of a stem to work from rather than a seed, if you know what I mean. Mm. Um, and with this record, it was the same. I you know, came up with a whole bunch of song structures and ideas, for instance, with the song Tundra, um, which is the one that's out at the moment, the big ringing guitar chords that sort of separate the song into two halves. One of the first things that I wrote for the album and um, so that, that sort of happened first, and then those melodies came around that, and then that big riff at the start came in, and then I sort of came to Alex with these ideas, and he came up with this really cool um, King Crimson-style guitar bit in the middle, and then we all kind of just collaborated from there. Um, and, and Timbo, you know, works in, this, in a similar way with the song Into the Arms of Ghosts. He sort of came up with these chords that, that started the song in this really badass way. Um, and, yeah, but it, it's, it's usually members coming up with a, a few ideas that then me and Alex sort of bash into shape. Listen, listen to the album this morning. Am I mistaken in detecting a little more, I don't know, I don't know how you might phrase it, but kind of a, a proggy influence on this album? 
Oh, 100%, man. Yeah. Uh, like, in terms of influences, it's funny how it, t- it ended up. It, it, it's got this 70s prog vibe throughout the whole thing so strongly. And I think that's not uh, least to do with the fact that Nick Dadia, the producer, loves all of that all of that shit. Like, he loves, you know, Jethro Tull and Yes and Can and all that kind of... And Led Zeppelin, our drummer Tim, is obsessed. And um, that, that sort of thing is, is really in in the DNA of the music, but also in the production. There's so much Mellotron and, like, synths. And um, I kind of love that it's a bit of a, a love song to the 70s. Um, I think it's a bit incongruous with what you might expect from a band like this. And I think it makes the album sound quite unique. Mm, now, speaking of Nick Didier, he's worked with a lot of success- successful acts um, that everyone will recognise. Uh, Rage Against the Machine, Incubus... Pearl Jam, Powderfinger, among many others. Him brings such an array of experience. How does that benefit the album? Uh, we, we trust him, and um, we trust his ears. It's not to say there aren't disagreements, but he generally shoots them down by saying, all right, man, you can do it your way if you want, and it'll just be a little less magical. Um, and so it, it, it's good to have that kind of relationship, and having worked with him already on cartography, we walked in knowing what to expect and getting on really well and, you know, the, the, the relationship is established. In terms of what he really brings to this band and why we, why working with him for this record was such a natural decision, it's that he views recording music the same way that we do, which is that Sleep Makes Waves is in its heart and soul a live act. We're a live band and we're, all of our music is written to be experienced live. And so recording is often a, a tricky thing for us in which we try to capture this sort of lightning in a bottle and try our best to, to capture this energy that we bring to the stage. But Nick views music exactly the same way. And so his whole focus is on a really raw live sound and getting the most out of the performances. And not a lot of tweaking in the box. It's all about getting the sounds right from the amps, from the drums. So all the drums are recorded live, all the bass, or most of the bass is recorded live, as in we're all jamming the songs together. And then the guitars were, there was a few overdubs done over the top. Um, but essentially Nick brings this experience of translating live energy onto a record and that's why we're excited about working with him on this album. I guess it's the elephant in the room regarding discussion of your band and um, particularly this album is the campaign you ran on Possible for funding this album. Could you talk a little bit about how it all works because it's it's becoming more and more prevalent but it's still a very I think interesting concept and new to quite a few people. Yeah, it's a bit of a cringe, the whole pre-ordering thing, and it still is a bit of like a, you know, why, why, do they do, why are they doing this? Aren't they big enough to tour internationally? How come they can't just make the record? But the truth is that the music industry has been changing, and it's very different to how it was, you know, 10 years ago. Even uh, You know, it's, it's completely different to how it was 20 years ago. The way that we view this whole possible crowdfunding thing is just like it's a pre-ordering campaign. So we basically say the offer is, hey, Sleep Makes Waves fans, you've heard us make two albums now. Um, you know, hopefully you like them. If you trust us to write a third record that you will like, please just pre-order it now before it's written, and then this will enable us to make it as good as it can possibly be and work with an engineer and a producer of a, a caliber as, as Didier, you know? Um, and then also be able to have a little bit left over to, to tour all over the world. So if you're a Sleep Makes Waves fan and you live in, you know, England um, and you really want to see the band, this is a way for, for you to do it. So essentially it comes down to this idea that you're just pre-ordering the album and it also happens to not be made yet. But with Possible and these platforms, you also get this opportunity to sort of stack on some additional rewards and more personalization for people if they're, if they're into that. So things like getting your name in the liner notes was a reward. 
getting vinyl, getting merch and hoodies, and then some really one-of-a-kind items like Alex's old bass guitars that he used to tour with and Tim's blood-soaked snare drum head, um, which, which go for a little bit more money. And, and so if people want to support the band in that way and get some cool, cool swag out of it, then they can do that as well. So at, at its heart, it's a pre-order campaign, and it's you know, a reality of, of a band of our size that without that kind of thing, we, we couldn't exist. You mentioned that you did it all as well for love of cartography. Having that experience under your belt, did you do anything different this time? Oh, there's little things like just knowing what we're in for in terms of fulfilling all of the all of the pledges. Like it's one thing to be like, yeah, cool, you know, you'll get a, a complete signed discography and back catalogue if you do this. It's another thing to actually be like, all right, so X a number of people have ordered this. We've got to sign over a thousand CDs and like you know make the time to do that. That's that's almost two days. Um, especially when you've taken the 500 posters on top of that. You know, it's like there's a lot of work that goes into fulfilling the pledges. And I think we came into this with more of a sense of what that was going to be. The campaign is not over when the target is reached. Now you've got the, a lot of work ahead. And, and you know, we, we go into that with a lot of energy now. We, we know what's ahead and, and what's expected. And then it's just like some logistical stuff around, you know, making sure that the shipping is factored in appropriately because shipping overseas is expensive with vinyl. Um, all that kind of thing, so there's no unpleasant surprises. And, um, yeah, I mean, I suppose the nervousness is always there. You wake up every morning and, and check the site and see how much it's gone up by, if at all. And you go through phases in the middle of the campaign of being like, man, I hope we hit this. It's not going to look good if we don't. And you go through all of that drama. But um, it all worked out in the end. Do you think this is kind of, like, will, will be the method, an uh, uh, incredibly viable method, a uh, uh, phase? What, what do you think of this in terms of its impact on the sort of music industry landscape? I, I think it's definitely not going away anytime soon, and I think it's filled uh, a role that was super important, um, which is basically access to capital for bands that um, aren't going to be really on the horizon for record labels, and also bands like us who don't want to sign away all of our rights to our music and future revenue. Um, we have to be really careful with that stuff because that's a livelihood now, and often the, the capital up front from big labels comes with a lot of uh, provisions around the rights to the music. So we've been able to stay fully independent, and our label and manager, Mike, um, is you know basically on our team. He's like a member of the family, and we all work together to um, you know make this band as successful as it can be. In terms of other artists, you know, pop music's always going to be big business. That's not going away. Um, there's there's big money at the top, but for more artistic and experimental acts like us, um, you've got to constantly be thinking of ways to um, to connect with fans and enable revenue to come in. So the other thing that's come up, which a lot of bands are doing, is this Patreon thing, which um, we haven't really discussed yet because uh, we've been able to get by off the back of crowdfunding, which, which we kind of prefer. We'd rather just say, this is the thing we're going to give you. Uh, if you want to support, then please do. If not, that's cool. You can buy it at a show. Um, and that's worked for us. I, I, I don't really know what the future holds. I, I've been reading a little bit about this sort of blockchain technology, which is the same technology used for bitcoins, this idea that the more of something is, is made, the more valuable it gets, that sort of curve. And applying that to music, what if you had a Spotify on a blockchain that, you know, the more someone streams the song, the more money went to the artist, that kind of thing. I, you know, I think that there'll be some massive paradigm shifts in the next 15 years that'll completely disrupt the industry, but I, I, I dare not take a stab at predicting what they are, other than to say, for now, crowdfunding works for us. In terms of the band, recently it has, well, not necessarily recently, but it has changed since the last album. Uh, Daniel, your new guitarist, how, how is he going? How did he go contributing to his first album? Oh, man, getting Dan on board has been a dream come true for, for me. I mean, I, I 
some of the first shows I went to in Sydney were Meniscus shows, his other band, um, and he's an absolutely stunning guitar player and a very unique approach to the instrument. Um, getting him on the record was really rad. He bring, you know, his, his performance and his, uh, his guitar playing style is just so clear throughout the whole album. It's um, so expressive and passionate um, and jagged in some places and smooth and atmospheric in others. Um, yeah, so it, it's, it's been really cool having him in the band and, his, and, and you know, probably most importantly, his live energy is, is, is really, really amazing. Um, but his next tour is coming up. He's focusing on some meniscus stuff and some personal stuff. So we brought in our good mate Lachlan Marks to handle the live stuff. Um, who also brings his own unique kind of rockabilly energy on stage. And we've been having a lot of fun touring with Lucky on this last tour with Under Oath. There was an aesthetic that you guys were using, having long titles and a lack of capitalization for, <laughs> for song and album titles, which ended with love of cartography. This, this is kind of one of those irrelevant things, to, uh, I think, to most people. But like, what, what's the decision behind an uh, artistic choice like that? I think it just kind of is, is what... It's, it's what members, certain members feel that, like, that stuff is cool, certain members feel that, that stuff is lame, and we just grew up, you know, uh, it, we all got older since the first records were made, but before I was in the band, like, that, that EP, Into There Already Walks Tomorrow, like, the guys were, were in their early 20s, and um, now we're all in our early 30s, myself excluded, I'm in my late 20s. Um, and I, I don't know, I, I guess you just go through different things of what you're into and, and what you find interesting and what speaks to you. And I think, you know, let's take Alex, for example, he, he got more into a more minimalist thing where it's like he wanted to do more with less words. He wanted mm. to find words that, came, that, that had that same emotional impact that was evoked by some of those longer titles, but do it more succinctly. And that was what he was into. And so, like, we all try to respect one another's viewpoints and, and, and work around what one another brings, and um, there's always compromise. Um, so on, on this record, yeah, there was no need for, for really long titles if we could get across what we wanted to say in two words, you know? It was just kind of that thing of... Um, of cutting down and putting the song titles on a diet a little bit. <laughs> mm. Sort of tangential to that is song titles for an instrumental band. That kind of fascinates me because how how do you decide that a particular song represents a particular idea, emotion? How, how does that all work? Because with you know, a, a band with a vocalist, you, it'd be based on lyrics and usually a particular line of the song. How, how does it work for a, an instrumental band? Yeah, it's pretty pretty traumatic sometimes it's the last thing that we do and we try to really nail it you know and, and it takes a huge amount of thought and often there's a bit of back and forth um on cartography this was left to the last minute and i remember like in the 48 hours before the record was mastered there was this big email thread with all of us putting ideas in and and arguing back and forth over what was the most appropriate thing all of our personalities are quite different but together we do have all the bases covered i think and we do come out with the best possible solution with this one I, des- I really wanted to avoid that last-minute panic. And so I-, I started coming up with this long list of evocative and badass names about a year and a half ago. It's on, like, a notepad on my phone. Mm-hmm. Whenever I was reading a book or, or like, uh, you know, I- if I read a poem or came across something that, like, had a line that was really sort of captured something in a way that I hadn't thought about, I'd just write it down. And um, so by the end of this record, because the album titles always come last, uh, the album and song titles, we sort of had the music and we kind of knew what the music was doing and then it was a matter of matching the vibe and the, and the theme of the song to a title that suited it. And that didn't work out 100%, but there was a bunch that did work. Um, it, it's kind of like the first thing that people see to connect with the song is the title and it sort of sets the emotional theme for that song and kind of gives the listener a sense of what to expect. And the best sort of title 
is kind of has that specificity to it. It sort of does say this is kind of the vibe of the song. This is what you can expect. But it also has enough emptiness in it that people can fill that title with their own memories. They can bring their own experience to the title, and it has some personal significance to them. So that's kind of the ultimate, um, and that's what we try to try to aim for. And then with this record, we had another layer on top of that, which is that we had this sort of conceptual theme around Antarctica and the Arctic, and that we wanted to kind of like overlay that and and bring that atmosphere to these song titles as well. Well, generally, in terms of being an instrumental band, why has that attracted you to that that kind of style, playing in that kind of band? Well, it's funny. We all played in different bands that had singers at various points, but this was the one that started picking up some steam. Um, and I think it's sort of the one that we've been best at as musicians. Um, I, I mean, it's hard to explain why. I, I, it's just something that... I, I suppose, like, I consider myself as a musician more of a vocalist than a guitar player but I, I approach guitar playing like a singer in the sense that like, I, I try to create notes and lines that, that are hooky and that get stuck in your head and that, you know, that there's a voice to them. Um, and, and so I, I guess as a guitar player, like it's, it's helped push my playing and, um, and the band's been a big part of, of, of how I've developed as a guitar player. And I think um, the guitar playing has influenced the way that the band's gone. And so it's that kind of back and forth. Um, on this record, I, I do do a little bit of singing, um, but it's never been the focus of this band. Mm. And it's kind of like that thing where it's like we, we've come this far being instrumental and, and we've, um, we're quite proud of the, uh, the musical output that we've um, accomplished so far. And so if it ain't broke, don't fix it. it. It's interesting the fact that instrumental bands, except for maybe kind of this vague um, sort of area of music, almost basically tend to have vocalists. Uh, it's just a very interesting kind of law across a lot of popular cultures. I don't know. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts about why that is? Uh, well, I think the voice is a really fundamental and powerful mu- musical instrument. It's the first musical instrument. It goes mm. back a very, very long way. And singing is very powerful. It, it, um, I, I really believe that when you sing, you're, you're tapping into something real, and it's very cathartic and very important um, for people to sing. And so I, I guess the voice is the way that it's been done for a very long time, and instruments are a more recent technology. And so it's a bit different to what's sort of come before it. But then again, you've got orchestras, and you've got all that kind of stuff, mm. um, and, and that's a thing as well. But I suppose that's much more recent than singing, which, which goes back to the dawn of humanity itself. For you personally, how did you first get into music? I got into music... I suppose the first taste of music was listening to the Beatles that my mum used to play when I was very she'd sing along and then I um, really got into music as opposed to sort of soccer and sport which I was into when I was a young teenager when I discovered Metallica and System of the Down and Nirvana and bands like that and um, the heavier side of things and I was like whoa I've never heard emotion like this and atmospheres like this created by big loud distorted guitars and big tribal thumping drums there was just something that connected me to metal um, and drew me into that world and um, that's when I got obsessed and started playing guitar and learning guitar and then from metal you know there's just such a rabbit hole to go down and um and i fell down it and i'm still kept falling i guess you know i'm still i'm still in love with heavy music and um i think a lot of us in sleep makes waves started in a similar place and we bring that kind of atmosphere to the songwriting when, when did you get first sort of discover or get into music that kind of is vaguely in the area that you play in um i think i came across Explosions in the Sky and This Will Destroy You when I was about 18, probably online. And um, I thought it was wonderful. I thought it was really amazing. And those two bands are 
pretty heavy hitters in the, in the, in the sort of quote-unquote post-rock scene. And then I got into Sigur Ross and Mogwai, and I, and I love that stuff as well. And, um, and then I found Sleep Makes Waves. You know, I was a, a fan back then and um, came across them and realized there were bands in Australia doing this stuff. And that was a really nice moment. I know, I know this is kind of the, one of the most difficult questions in the world for most people, but um, what, are, what are some of your favorite bands and or albums? Um, I love, there's a couple of things that I always answer this with. Um, the first one is the now unfortunately named Isis, which yeah. before they were a, a militant organization were, um, were an amazing atmospheric sludge band from America and um, who, who are famous for an incredible variety of sonic heaviness that they achieve in their records and atmospheres. Um, they're probably my all-time favorite band, and I love their records, Oceanic and Panopticon. I'm a big fan of Deftones and the more melodic and sexy side that they bring to metal. Um, I love White Pony. It's probably one of my all-time favorites. And then I also love Sun Kill Moon. Um, Mark Kozilek's recently become a cantankerous old grump um, with whom I have very little in common, but his songwriting in the early 2000s is unbelievable, and Ghosts of the Great Highway has a really special place in my heart. I'm not very experienced with, like, uh, as in I'm not experienced at all with with pedals and those sort of things. But it was a really frequent topic on your Ask Me Anything that you and I think Alex did. How do you go about finding, picking pedals? How, how does all that kind of stuff work? You know, we we, we truly do give it, it, it's some thought into it, but it's far less thought than than popular culture would have you believe. I mean, the most important thing with any band is songwriting and performance like that's what it comes down to we, we could we could do what we do with you know the cheapest pedals from the cheapest store and it would sound pretty alright um, but we, we do take that obsessiveness in our songwriting to our sound being an instrumental band that, that the sonic impact and the textures and the dynamics that we that we do create are, um, are very important to us and so we do chase perfection pretty obsessively when it comes down to it um, in terms of selection it's all trial and error you know and also forums you know, that we visit and, and friends that we have in similar scenes. Um, for this record and this album cycle, I acquired um, a guitar that's entirely made out of aluminium, so there's no wood on it, um, through a friend of mine called Nick Smethers, who um, works with this company from the States called the Electrical Guitar Company. And so it's things like that that I, I fell in love with the sound of this all metal guitar and sort of the, the different tone that it created and how it sort of separated the sound of the band a little bit. It, it's stuff like that. You want to create something that's unique and interesting and... Um, I guess the pedals are a way to do that kind of stuff. The artwork, I, I always find myself kind of like, ooh, that's, <clears throat> that's interesting, and never really quite sure what's going on in the artwork. What's the story behind that? In this record, um, it's very intentional. Actually, with, with all the records, there's a lot of thought that goes into it, and the artwork is the end result of a really long, iterative design process between myself and our designer, James, um, to come up with something that in some way evokes the spirit of the record. Um, with this one, the brief was quite specific to do with the Antarctic and the Arctic and to do with the fragility of these ecosystems and the beauty and the bleakness of them, um, a place where beauty and loss converge into this sort of landscape metaphor. James did an amazing thing with this album. He, he, the artwork on it is completely digital, and he created an enormous 3D digital landscape that you could actually like move around in and look at from different perspectives and different times of day. So the single covers that will come out are of the same landscape as the album cover, just from different perspectives and from different times of day. Um, and I want to use this enormous digital landscape further in terms of motion graphics and, and projections on stage and things like that at a later point. Um, but it, yeah, it came about through a lot of discussion and a lot of back and forth. We start very wide, and James presents a series of options, and then from there we sort of narrow in progressively. Um, 
And in this case, this was the first time that I've been so specific with a brief. Usually we give James a brief like, we want something that sort of celebrates optimism and travel and energy, you know, that kind of thing. But it's also important that the album's artwork has an aesthetic that we can then utilize for further uh, artifacts, such as tour posters and T-shirts and merch. I really like everything to be unified. Every album cycle needs to be along a theme so that the merch feels like of a kind with the album. Um, all that stuff means a lot to me. and I, I, I'm a designer by trade, and I, I like everything to be sort of unified and, and the experience for the, for the fan to be kind of special. Final question. In terms of your live show, um, how do you manage the kind of dynamics? Because in your music, there's an incredible sort of softness, uh, a fragility, a beauty in it, but then in kind of loud, thumping uh, aggression. How how do you manage the difference between those two? Well, there's two big parts to that. The first is um, just in our performance. We're very mindful of dynamics, and uh, we, 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 we all choose gear and play together in a way and enough times now that we know which parts of the songs to really kind of bring down and which parts of the songs to really hit hard. It's in the songwriting as well, you know. We, we write songs so that it does have that juxtaposition between the quieter moments and the louder moments. Dynamics are a really important sort of tool in our toolkit as songwriters in this band. But the second really important thing is we work with really great live sound engineers who know the band well and who know rooms well and who um, are really the fifth member on, on that night in terms of making that a really special experience for the audience. So our main guy is a guy called Brett Tollis, who's been with us for many, many years. And Brett's just... You know, he's an artist in his own right with, with what he does with, um, with sound in rooms. And we, we know how important it is, and we, we trust him to deliver every night. Third album from Sleep Makes Wave, Made of Breath Only, released on March 24th. And the next day, they'll be playing at Max Watts in Melbourne. Otto, thank you so much for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, man. No worries. Thanks for listening to the Mosh Pit Backstage Podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Omni. To find out more about the show, go to www.syn.org.au slash moshpit. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash moshpitonsin and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at moshpitsin. The regular Moshpit radio show broadcasts punk, rock and male tunes and interviews every Thursday nights on Sin 9.7 on FM and digital radios. Listeners outside of Melbourne, Australia can stream Sin 9.7 online at www.syn.org.au. Thanks to Vintage Ruin for the music. Hi, this is Samantha from Flash Gun Apocalypse. Hi, I'm Enid from Girls Go. I am Phoebe Pinnock from Heaven the Axe. Hey, this is Gary Oldman of the Misfits. Hey, this is Kat Sproul from Horizon's Edge, and you're listening to The Mosh Pit on Sin FM. Hi, this is Aina from Leopard. Hi, I'm Virginia Lilly from the band Lilly. This is Raoul from 1449. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ali from Eberhead. Hey everybody, this is Charlie Benante with Anthrax, and you are listening to the Mosh Pit on Sims.